This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street. From race to adventure, custom to naked, look no further than Renthal Street for handlebars, clip-ons, chains, and sprockets. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Renthal Street clip-on handlebars. For premium race-back clip-ons developed by some of the world's fastest riders, check out Renthal.com. On today's Paddock Pass podcast, we're going to look back at the final days of winter testing for the 2023 season. And I presume we're going to ask the question, can Peko Bagnaia be beaten and can anyone stop Ducati? But as it is, David, you've been boots on the ground with Adam in Portimao and um, it's been a pretty pretty newsworthy couple of days really there's a lot to pick through from the test uh, yeah exactly i mean um, the most newsworthy thing is that, like we had two days of absolutely glorious weather and perfect um uh, conditions and i think they were doing as many laps in the two days at portimao as they did uh, in over three days at uh, zapang um uh, yeah i mean and, and the other thing is a lot of people were doing sprint uh, sprint race to simulations and they were pretty much you know ready to go i think uh, it really feels like we've got a good idea of of how the certainly the start of the season is going to play out adam wheeler from on track off road obviously ad it's been a busy stretch for you you were down in portimao you were also keeping track around one of mxgp and uh, now you've got a couple of days off it looked pretty grim uh, from preseason testing for Honda, Steve, but in motocross, it was pretty good. Um, Ruben Fernandez, the latest Spaniard, had his name to MXGP, um, what's the word, Hall of Fame. Uh, in fact, he was the first rider, since, um, apart from Tim Geiger, to win an MXGP in the Premier Class for like eight years. So that was a, a little bit of a landmark um, created in Argentina. But it did mean I was very busy on the Sunday um, myself and... Uh, our trusty colleague Manuel Pacino were the last people in the press room that evening and it meant another grim McDonald's in the hotel room. But um, yeah, it was a good test. I'm just thankful that MotoGP wraps at the time it does because all these riders doing media debrief around 7pm and later just makes it a hell of a long day. Uh, how do you pronounce the name of the track, Ad? Because um, uh, as you know, it's just very, very funny in Dutch. Uh, the Algarve International Circuit. <laughs> no, not that one. Argentina. You uh, you know what I meant. Nel Nelkian, I think. No, but you know, I'm sure I'll be shot down by any Argentinians listening to this. Yeah, it's just the Argentinian MXGP. <laughs> and uh, Neil, obviously, you weren't quite as busy as Ad, but uh, you were still busy keeping up to date on the test. You were working in Barcelona for us, and uh, you'll go out to Portimao actually for the Moto Two, Moto Three test next week. Exactly, Steve. Um, I think if I didn't have the Moto Two, Moto Three test this weekend, my girlfriend might be kicking me out of the house because she's just absolutely sick and tired of me slouching around in my uh, in my kind of tracksuit bottoms and uh, yeah, um, lazy wear. So yeah, like it feels like everything's starting to get up and going again. Um, and then, yeah, in Portugal, I think for 10, 11 days and then a day at home and then over to Argentina for a week. So yeah, we're getting, we're getting to that stage now where everything's getting ready to go. And by the way, Dave, what, 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 what does the MXGP track mean in Dutch? I mean, curious. Noken. Um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's Dutch for, um, a, a special, a special lovely cuddy with a cuddle with your special lady fornication <laughs> i well yes <laughs> fair enough actually um neil has to be said i think um you were 
just as busy as we were because um, for people that don't quite realize, the tests are just a chaotic period, especially when the riders and teams decide to finish. You have people suffering incidents like Alessia Spargaro, who was operated on today or yesterday. Yesterday. yesterday we're recording on tuesday he was operated on monday uh so he wrapped up things pretty early um digia you know with, on the on the grassini bike uh was suffered a concussion so he was talking to us sunday morning otherwise riders are you know completing laps right up until the end of the session they do some practice starts debrief and then by the time they get to us in the press room uh it's usually just complete chaos trying to understand what they've been through what they're prepared to tell us which sometimes isn't much at all and then you know trying to get all that typed up and understood so that we can do stuff like the paddock pass podcast note show and uh, let people know um, what's been going on right from the racetrack so uh fair play to you mate you were on the keyboard hammering up some transcriptions so um you know uh, laying around in your in your jogging bottoms was um actually you know leading quite a productive state for you yeah, I was doing that just so I can do the. I can be on the other the other side of the fence this weekend, Dad. Coming up, I'll be sending you all the uh, Honda Team Asia Model Three quotes for you to type up. Oh, my my word documents open ready. Yeah, Honda Team Asia. Looking forward to the start of the season. Optimistic, and uh, obviously everyone's a little bit optimistic at this stage, but. Two days of GP testing, and uh, there's a few people more optimistic than each other. So let's move straight into our big talking points from the Portimao test. David, what about you? What was your big takeaway from two days down in Portimao? Uh, I suppose it's two to, it's uh, it's two different takeaways from two different days because on the first day of the test uh, at Portimao, it really looked like uh, Fabio Quartararo was in in trouble. He was complaining that uh, the only thing the bike did properly was turn he wasn't even looking at the top speed because like he had so many problems everywhere else he was very slow he couldn't do a fast lap and uh, had no feeling when he put a new tire in just nothing happened um and so he was he was really quite concerned and then they basically on the final day of the test they threw uh all of their 2023 aero away put the 2022 aero back on um, possibly because we're not entirely sure that the 2023 era was actually legal. Um, and they went back to some old settings, so either 2022 or perhaps even 2021. Uh, and with the new engine, that bike worked just fantastic. So um, he was really fast at the third fastest time, uh, was really happy, really felt that he could at least sort of make a go of the championship. So, I mean, for me, it really looks like Fabio is not going to have another repeat of 2022. Uh, we've still got to wait and see whether it'll be a repeat of 2021. Uh, but at least he doesn't feel like hamstrung by his bike like he did all, all year last year. That was good news for Fabio, but it wasn't such great news for Franco Morbidelli because that regression to a 22 setting, which was a setting that the, you know, the Italians struggled with the whole year. I mean, we don't quite know how many mods Yamaha have made to the chassis on the M1. Um, like you mentioned, Dave, they've clearly brought a better engine, but it really wasn't working for Morbidelli again. I mean, he cut a, a quite a frustrated figure. Um, I actually had him down as my loser from the test because, uh, there was not much to hang on to and from his um exposition to us in the debriefs it was also a familiar forlorn frankie that um 
you know, we, we, it's hard to imagine much of a future for him with the factory team at the moment. But of course, it's ridiculously early days. There are still a couple of one day tests where he could turn things around. But that movement by Yamaha to suit Fabio, or, and it does suit Fabio, may not do so well for, for the, for the Frankie Morbidelli. Yeah, I think it's fair to say at this stage, Ad, that while it's early doors to be able to ask him questions about uh, Franco's future, it's also impossible not to ask those questions because what's he bringing to the table for Yamaha? And even though MotoGP's closer than it's ever been, no one's a million miles off, but they are. And if you're always down at the bottom of the timesheets, if you're always waiting for that moment for it all to click into place, a manufacturer is going to get impatient. And Yamaha, they've had their patience tried already. We know the flashes and we know what Franco's potential is because we saw it a few years ago whenever he was a championship contender. But when you've already got Fabio there, is it really a case of you need to keep Franco on the bike just in the hope that he turns it good? I can imagine that if he hasn't turned it around by the fifth or sixth round of the season, that's it. I mean, the the other thing is they've only got two riders um, and... You know, they don't have a satellite team. They really need a strong second rider who can uh, at least, like if Fabio's having a bad day, provide some ba- uh, provide some decent feedback, provide some decent data. Uh, Franco is just not going to be able to do that. So, um, and also if Yamaha want to sell a satellite package, it, it's really hard to sell uh, a satellite bike, uh, you know, find a satellite team uh, telling them, well, the bike's all right as long as Fabio Quartararo is, is riding it. If they've got someone else who's fast, then maybe, you know, maybe they can persuade someone. Yeah, I mean, I did a quick interview with uh, Carlos Espeleta today. Um, you know, it was just like 20 minutes. And I asked him, you know, how do you feel about the the shade of red that's on MotoGP? I mean, Ducati having eight bikes on the grid and also the Moto E class as well. Uh, and one of the things he, he kind of said, you know, not prompted by me was referencing Yamaha. He said he believes that Yamaha see the, the, the value of having a second team, both for on-track representation as well as development. But Dave, like you say, if if you get to the end of the year and to independent teams look at the M1 and think, well, only Quattararo can make that bike work, you know, it's a similar situation to Honda, then why would they potentially swap Ducati or Aprilia bikes or, you know, KTM bikes even to, to take... Um, Yamaha machinery. It's um, it's a little bit of a catch twenty two. Just one more thing to go back to the uh, bits, uh, the the bits that uh, Yamaha have bought. They don't have a big update for their chassis. It is a twenty twenty three chassis, but it looks identical to twenty twenty two. They do have a new swing arm, which does look uh, a, a bit different. Uh, but apart from the apart from that, the bike looks very very similar. But that's you know that's always been the Yamaha way, and it was always for them. Really, the r- thing that really really mattered was the engine. We had a question in from Chris as well on Twitter just asking us about the Yamaha Aero and the rear wing in particular. Is this something that's going to be seen through the course of the season? Is it something that's a little bit of a diversion or what impact will it have? I mean, they they tried it, but that was it. Um, They tried it. It didn't make any difference. It wasn't good. It wasn't bad. uh, So there's no point in putting it on. I mean, you know, it caught everyone's uh, attention. Uh, Simon Crayfire joked to me, sort of like thinking, um, you know, it's going to be great for sponsors. All of that air, uh, you know, all of that surface area to put on there. Um, But it didn't make any difference. So I, there's, there's no upside to it. So I don't think we'll ever see it again. Yeah, it was one of the first things that Fabio was asked about in his debrief on Sunday. And he just nonchalantly 
made no comment at all. Like Dave said, it didn't really help. It didn't really hinder. Um, there was some conjecture at the beginning as to whether it's actually legal or not. Um, but then Dave reminded uh, some of us that, you know, parts like that, as long as it is in the shadow of the rider, um, you yeah, know, it's an acceptable the rider. form. Um, yeah. I mean, I've already spoken to the team and I've ordered one to be having my pizza on Fridays. So, um, you know, it worked quite nicely on the lap. But apart from that, yeah, I don't think we'll be seeing any more. But it could be a, a future direction, especially as factories get even more desperate to find some marginal gains, Steve. Uh, I mean, 18 riders separated by one second. Again, that's why it's easy to hammer a rider like Takanagagami or Franco Morbidelli. But I mean, to be just over one second away from lap record time, I mean, look at Jack Miller. He set a lap time faster than he did on the on the Ducati at the Grand Prix last year. I know the conditions were somewhat different, but you know, to be up to that speed already on the, on the KTM after only sort of four or five days is pretty impressive. Yeah, it is. But the problem with it is that's the world we live in now, where it is that competitive in MotoGP, and that's where I thought it was interesting to see Yamaha roll out something like that wing because it gave everyone something to focus on. Yamaha could have been putting out a rider with three legs and one arm and no one would have noticed it because they were all focused on the wings. So I, I think that there's going to be some things in aero over the course of this year and next year and the next while where we see teams almost just trying different things, seeing what works and seeing how it plays out because we saw lots of teams rolling out a lot of aero work and that was one of the big things for me that was interesting during this test of Prilia with uh, plenty of upgrades to their bike and the same up and down pit lane, really. Yeah, I, I'm sure Neil can remember this better than I can, but I do remember that uh, about 2015 or 2016, uh, I think when Honda rolled out their very first uh, set of aerodynamics, uh, they put the wings on, uh, I think, like the last day of the test because they wanted to try a new engine. Um, and a new engine with a different firing order. And so they put the wings on because everyone was gathered around the wings looking at the wings uh, and didn't notice that actually the, the engine sounded different. So, yeah, there, there's a certain amount of subterfuge going on from time to time. This is a, It's an old trick. Put something really sort of blatantly obvious in front of uh, people and, and they'll be looking at the wrong things. Adam, just to move on from the aero and uh, the Yamaha chat, what was your big takeaway from the test? I think it's easy to get quite sniffly about testing, Steve, because it can, some people's opinion, it's a time to roll out some gimmicks. Um, you know, there's the stuff like Yamaha's rear wing, for example. Is that something they're seriously going to pursue or is it just a, a trick that, you know, um, to show people, yes, we're here testing, we're trying to innovate. Um, again, with the chat with Carlos Espeleta again today, he mentioned that the next regulation change in 2027, things are always are going to get interesting for that particular window with the MSMA and the manufacturers debating how MotoGP will look in the next technical phase, then, you know, the the relevance of people like Ducati and, you know, the power holders on the grid are really going to come to the fore. But I was just wondering, you know, testing, do is there enough time? I mean, it was the official riders had five days on the bike. Um, I mean, imagine if the weather had been really poor, it poured down for two days in Portimao. Um, you know, you could on one hand say that the manufacturers and the teams have official testing programs, but then you kind of wonder... How is Mika Calio, Danny Pedrosa, and you know now Jonas Folger 
contributing towards KTM's program and then, you know, Brad, Brad Binder and to a lesser extent, Jack Miller, because he's new to the bike and the team. But how can Brad Binder then face this chronic rear grip issue? You know, if he has these three fantastic riders in the background, you know, like um, giving the feedback and help chiseling, chiseling a version of the RC16, why does Binder then have these issues? As it turns out, they did manage to find something by the third day, uh, sorry, the second day in Portimao. But I'm just, just wondering whether... You know, now that the race is the GP calendars, 21 GPs, I know we have one or two intermittent one-day tests through the season. Pre-season, is, is it really that much? Is it, is it adding extra stress to the, the guys that need to perform and, and put on the show, I guess? I, I mean, the whole point about it is cost-cutting, because, and especially cost-cutting for the satellite teams. Sure, the factories want to test as much as possible, um, and they would. You know, they would just sort of they'd spend uh, if they if there was unlimited testing, they would be sort of out pretty much every week with all of the factory riders uh, doing as much testing as possible. And but but satellite teams simply can't keep up that sort of thing. So um, because. The satellite teams don't get paid to test. They actually have to pay to test. So there's no income and there's a lot of expense. They've got to fly all of that, fly everyone out there. Um, uh, they're rolling through their engines. Uh, they're, they're, they're using parts, um, which they're going to need at the end, at the end of the year. Uh, whereas if they go racing, I mean, one of the reasons we have 21 rounds is because, uh, the teams get paid to go racing. You know, Del Dorna gives, uh, gives them money to go racing. So they would much rather race than test. But yeah, it does mean that it makes it more difficult for teams which are in trouble to actually catch up yeah that's a really good point actually Dave because if you remember Joe and Zarko told us on Saturday after he crashed twice I think that you know he had been using the 23 version of the fairing spec on the Desmo Sedici but then you know they had to shelve that particular area of development because they didn't really have that many more units to play with uh, you know because MotoGP goes straight to Argentina and Austin after uh, Portimao and there's a, a real, I wouldn't say a lack of parts and equipment, but they, they have to be, you know, a little bit disciplined with it. I mean, if, if Zarco crashed another two fairings in, in Portimao, then you know, he's going to be maybe lacking or, or looking, you know, a little bit tight for the Grand Prix races themselves. So that's another factor you have to take into it. But uh, I just think it's five days really enough with official guys on the bikes because, uh, a brand like you know a company like KTM or even to a prettier to an extent uh, just need more track time or Honda yes yes I think for me one of the things with it is that testing is always a strange one especially when you go to the tests because you arrive at the test and you see everyone there and you just think oh it's a it's a bit expensive for everyone to come here for no exposure there's nothing that you gain from it and it's one of those situations where, like, we had it in World Superbikes at the Jerez test this year. Everyone was ready to run. And we had pretty much a full grid. It was an unofficial test. But everyone kind of looked at it and said, you know what? The cost of this is more than the cost of going to a, Jeep, uh, to a World Superbike round because all of the same expenses are there, but you don't get anything back for it. So there's a, there's a big school of thought in the Superbike paddock that uh, maybe we need to have it where there's official tests just for the manufacturers with their factory riders to iron out their upgrades for the new year. Our championship is obviously different to MotoGP because if you've got a bike and you've got parts, you have to make it available to all your independent teams at a certain cost. So there's a big push to try and have something with an official test for the factories and then reduce the amount of testing elsewhere just because 
the cost is so high. Is it time to bring back GP zero? Um, the sort of the unofficial test at the start of where there would be one time session where everyone would really go for it. And there was, I think there was a, like a car on uh, uh, up for grabs for the, uh, for the fastest qualifier. I think they scrapped BMW, it around Dave. Was it a BMW? Yeah, well, 2010, 2011, something like that. Uh, I, I really liked that. I really enjoyed that. I think my first MotoGP event was actually GP0 at Jerez in 2009. So maybe it's time to bring it back. I thought they got rid of it a lot earlier than that, Dave. I, I thought it was like 2000. No, 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 2009, because that was my very first MotoGP event, my first uh, uh, as a journalist. My first uh, race as a journalist was World Superbikes in 2008 at Portimao. And then I went to Jerez for, the, for GP Zero, and it was um, the, the crack was mighty. But what were you going to say, Neil? Well, this is one of the consequences of having such an extended calendar. I mean, we have 21 races, and uh, when you have 21 races, there's less time to go testing. I mean, I know that uh, we have had quite a long preseason, a long winter break, um, but the fact of the matter is that uh, we're all going to be away from home for quite a lot this year, and um, you know that's going to be pretty expensive getting everything and paying for everyone to fly around the world and stop off in certain places um, like Kazakhstan, India, if they do indeed go ahead. Um, so yeah, I think that's kind of part of the whole ethos of uh, expanding the calendar um, and making sure there's less testing, more racing, um, because at least with the racing, you're making money, as Steve said. Well, why not flex the rules slightly then? So take KTM, for example, Brad Binder, and Jack Miller can run laps at the testing days that KTM are doing with Danny Pedrosa, Folger, and Mika Calio. I mean, like you say, Neil, there's 21 Grand Prix, so the ri official riders are doing enough as it is. But if a factory is in, in the mire and they need that extra time, maybe even wipe a few more official days off and, and say, you know, don't put a limit on how many times Brad Binder can ride. They could ride for two months if he wanted to. That's what the concessions are for. I mean, you know, like if you want if you want more testing, then simply all you need to do is not score any podiums. What about instead of something like that, had you just kind of changed Friday to just be a tester? Because obviously MotoGP, one of the big things with it is the jeopardy of Q1, Q2. So your Friday test, your Friday practice times become critical. If that changed to just being a free practice day, Surely that would be a, a more useful useful time for the teams and manufacturers. But then where's the excitement for your spectators tuning in on a Friday? Um, if there's no jeopardy, then they just think, well, we'll just tune in for Friday or sorry, Saturday morning qualifying and the sprint race. Um, I mean, I think I think having this kind of Who's system tuning in on a Friday. Well, I mean, the, like the, the hardcore. Uh, the one, the, the hardcore. one thing. The one thing about Friday is it's only fanatics the tune in to free practice that's why all of us have always watched free practice <laughs> and it's the same for all of our listeners because you're a fanatic about MotoGP. you need to see it you need to know what's happening your hardcore fan isn't the one that you need to attract and that's where friday for me is one of those days that it's an important day but it's not especially now that we've got the sprint race on saturday it's certainly a, a day that you could lose a lot of a lot of running yeah but i mean even as a, a hardcore fan as we all are um you have to admit that the prospect of watching two essential testing sessions is nowhere near as interesting as watching two sessions laced with jeopardy where everyone's going for a bonsai lap time at the end of uh, at the end of each session i mean that's kind of why even the hardcore fans i think would would tune in 
The other thing is, uh, Dorno um, and uh, the people running MotoGP want uh, teams to have as little setup time as possible because the more setup time there is, uh, the less interesting the race, the less chance of surprises. You know, basically the best team with the best bike and the best setup is going to just come in, sort the bike, sort out their little problems, find that that sort of basically tenth of a second which is only available to uh, the very best teams and clean up. And what you get when there isn't very much uh, setup time is you get completely open races because no one's got a clue what they're doing. People have to take a gamble. Um, they have to try something. If it works, then okay. If it doesn't work, then they're in trouble and it opens the championship up. So, I mean, it's not... Um, I don't think it's a stated purpose to uh, give people as little uh, as little setup time as possible. But whenever whenever I've spoken to people uh, on from you know the official side of MotoGP, sort of off the record, they've sort of basically told me, "Now nah, we don't want them to give them setup time. If they've got setup time, they'll just ruin everything and, and and run away." That's a good point, Dave. Especially when Ducati won four times as many races as anyone last year had what three and a half four times as many podiums as anyone last year so having the friday practice it, it's it's hurt you caddy quite a lot as the best bike on the grid <laughs> what about what about you neil what was your big talking point from the portamao test well it was one of either two things steve um i mean the continued strength of Ducati, I guess we could call it the ridiculous strength of Ducati, is uh, probably something to to talk about again. I know we did it at Sepang, but um, the fact that they had, uh, what, seven of their eight riders inside the top eight. I mean, Fabio Quattro was the only non-Ducati rider inside the top eight. That is noteworthy. Pekka Bagnaia obviously blitzing the lap record. I think five of the other, or sorry, four of the other Ducatis were also under the lap record as well. Um, and then just looking at the... Um, the sprint simulations that we had on Sunday. I thought Sunday was a really interesting day just because we had, obviously, the lap record being broken, but then uh, I think, what, 17, 16, 17 guys putting in pretty long runs um, at some point in the afternoon. And, um, I mean, it, it made for for really fascinating reading because, obviously, Pecco is in fantastic shape. He didn't just do one sprint simulation. I think he did two. I think he did two with two different rear tire compounds as well. And apparently, um, he wasn't so expressive in his, his debrief um, in English on Sunday, but I, I translated some of his comments in Italian. And he was saying that basically he approached the two sprints in two different kind of ways. Like the first one, he tried to go like hell from the start and be as aggressive as possible then. And the second was more muted at the start and he tried to increase the speed as the laps went by. So you'd have to say that that is just a, a ridiculous level of preparation to have had uh, come the end of preseason when guys like Marquez, guys like Binder were only really getting their their shit together, to put it in a certain way, uh, on the final day. You know, and by that stage, Pekka was already saying, OK, we're in a, a point now where we can try which tire is more effective. We can basically try which riding style is more effective over a longer distance. So, um, yeah, he's in incredible shape, I think, to a man. Uh, on Sunday, we were doing the After the Flag show from Barcelona and we were getting quite a lot of riders interviews coming through live from the circuit and pretty much to a man, everyone was saying Peko is the favourite for this year. Um, and uh, yeah, you can see why after a sort of performance like this, the fact that he's he's top of the pile and top of a, a kind of Ducati pile, you know, the, the guys like Martin, Alex Marquez, Bastianini even on the final day looked really good over a kind of sprint simulation run. Um, yeah. I mean, it's it's been the sort of preseason from 
the heavens, really, for Ducati. I mean, it could not have gone any better. Yeah, I, I think overall, looking at the test, you know, after it's finished, of course, um, I think Ducati weren't so much testing as they were setting up. Uh, you know, there's various states of the Desmond Sedici there that, you know, is, is clearly the best bike on the grid. So I think, you know, Bagnaia's case especially, he was working very much towards the first Grand Prix. Um, he had that freedom. He had that confidence. Uh, you know, his demeanor talking to us was of a world champion, somebody who's completely set and ready to go for the year. So it was, um, yeah, it, it doesn't. It looks very ominous for everybody else, basically. Um, whereas, you know, you had people like Honda and KTM with the complete opposite. Um, new riders on new bikes. Um, in fact, I'd say the only fascinating thing from Ducati in terms of actually testing and seeing new stuff was uh, Michele Piro and some of the, you know, the laps and, and some of the versions of the bike that he was wheeling out in the pit lane. Um, there was some kind of slightly weird stuff going on there. But uh, I don't think it's uh, as as Ducati told us at their bike launch um, in Madonna de Campiglio. Uh, you know, the end of January, they, it was just about refining what they've got, and um, I think we saw that Bagnaia looks uh, frightening. But one thing I did ask him was, Pecco, we've seen how fast you are over a lap. We've seen how well in sync you are with a motorcycle, but we haven't really seen you in traffic. And we know with the front tire pressures, that's going to be an issue that's going to affect things. I think looking at the sprint race for, uh, simulations is largely pointless because we're talking about a very short, compact blast, you know, a bevy of action. Um, I don't think, you know, there's not many riders apart from somebody who's got a whole shot who would be able to effectively set lap after lap without any kind of distraction or um, lack of focus. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's curious. I don't think we're going to see, uh, we'd have to worry about Pecco being in traffic given that he smashed the pro the lap record by nine tenths. Uh, so, it, you know, I mean, uh, and the second rider, Shaman Zarko, I think was three tenths behind and then there was a whole bunch of riders who were quite close together. I I mean, it's hard to see Pecco being anywhere else than starting from pole, getting a good start and just disappearing into the distance. And then it's easy. It's really easy to set your front throw pressure up. You set it up exactly as you please. He's not going to whole shot every race, is he? <laughs> oh, yes, he is. <laughs> <laughs> it is difficult to see. Um... This isn't the panto, is it, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> it is difficult to see anyone other than Peko, um currently uh, winning, you know, maybe even both races at, uh, at round one. Um and we know that Portimao hasn't always been the best track for racing in MotoGP, certainly. Um, World Superbike has been a bit different with, with some good races there in recent years. But, um, you know, the, the MotoGP races in general have been a bit a bit, a bit dull. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I was also, another thing just quickly before we go to a break, um, I was thinking, when was the last time a manufacturer has gone into a MotoGP season, MotoGP season in such a position of strength? I mean, we're not just talking about Ducati being... Um, favorite having the number one rider as the as the kind of favorite, but just the the fact that any one of seven or eight riders could finish on the podium at the first race. I mean, that's pretty ridiculous. You probably have to go back to Honda in two thousand and three. Two thousand and three, yeah, two thousand and three exactly. Because yeah. that I mean, the RC two eleven V was a fantastic motorcycle, um, and uh, you know, just completely dominated that era. It was just an absolutely superb motorcycle, and it was just it was better than anything anyone anything anyone else was building. And that's the way that it looks with the Desmos Adichie GP twenty three. Yeah, so the best situation for a manufacturer in twenty years. So you know, that's that kind of uh, that tells its own story, really. 
Yeah, I was just going to say that Honda was better in almost every area than all of its rivals, which is also something that could be said about Ducati quite a bit right now. And it's actually, Neil, just very quickly before we take the ad break, we got a question in from VJ, and he was asking whether anyone can stop Ducati in GP, but also in Superbikes as well this year. It really is just set up to be a perfect year for them again. Yeah, I mean... um I haven't watched the first two rounds uh, of Superbike, Steve. It's, it's really difficult to see anyone beating Bautista this year, you have to say. In GP, I think we, we can maybe be a bit more optimistic. I think, you know, as the season goes on, Quattararo uh, will get stronger. As the season goes on, I think Marquez will get stronger as well. You know, I don't think this is a... I'm certainly not hedging my bets on Peko for the championship this year. I think it's far too early to say um, whether he'll retain his crown. But um, certainly to start the season, I think it's really difficult to look past him. Yeah, well, let's take an ad break on the Paddock Pass podcast. When we come back, we'll look at our winners and losers from the Portimao test. Renthal Street, Chain and Sprockets are perfectly matched for maximum power transfer and efficiency. From racetrack to daily rider, with over 800 fitments, Renthal Street has a final drive solution for almost any bike. Use Renthal.com to find the correct fitment. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast brought to you by Renthal Street. So we've looked at some of the big talking points from two days in Portimao and they were gearing up towards the start of the MotoGP season. But Neil, let's kick it off with you. Who was your big winner from the the two days of testing? Well, um, Steve, I've gone for Alex Marquez uh, as my big winner because he had a uh, almost an exemplary test. I mean, even the negatives from his test, the fact that he crashed twice on Sunday, uh, he was spinning as a positive, saying that, oh, actually, there is a limit to this bike. Prior to that, he thought that he could just pretty much do what he wanted. Um, but he managed to find the limit on Sunday, which uh, he was spinning as a positive. Um, you know, his lap times were consistent and and fast. He was, I think, the seventh quickest guy at the end of Sunday. And his uh, his sprint simulation as well was really, really strong. Um, Spanish colleague Manuel Pacino sort of uh, did a table of all the, uh, the sprint simulations on Sunday, and I think he worked out that Alex's was third fastest, narrowly, narrowly behind uh, Jorge Martin. So, uh, yeah, Peco, Martin, and Alex were the top three. We know Portimao historically has been a really good track for Alex. I think he's had his best MotoGP races there in two of the past two seasons, each of the past two seasons. Um, so it's a layout that, that kind of works for him. But, um, yeah, just everything about him seems so calm um and uh i liked how he was trying to calm you all down i wasn't obviously there in portamao at the weekend but you were sending me through the the debriefs but yeah i was half expecting him to have a kind of comedy sky swig on with a big stick on mustache (laughs) the amount of calm downs he was saying to all of you guys when you were asking whether he could win the race so i mean alex marcus has never been in this situation before in moto gp so um it's uh it's interesting yeah um i mean I, I think he can finish on the podium at the first race no doubt yeah i mean i i uh, took about two two and a half hours on uh sunday the last day of the test walking around just to sort of i walked the entire track and sort of stopped 
uh, places to watch people write, and uh, you can you get a sense of the body uh, of the body language. I mean, I, I'm not as good as uh, other people are at it. If you go around with a writer, they can tell you exactly what's going on. But it was just it was really obvious that um, Alex Marquez it was he was just sort of radiating this sense of joy. He was he was just absolutely in control of the motorcycle. There was nothing you know he did everything he wanted. Um, I recognize it like you know when it's those perfect days for going motorcycling and you're on a fantastic road and there's no traffic around uh and you're just sort of like sweeping around everywhere it's um you get that same exact same sense of joy and that was what alex marcus looked at it was just impressive uh, impressive to watch and i really i think i think i don't even think he was lying when he was saying like it was a good thing that um uh that, that he crashed because He's in such a good place that, that, you know, to find out that that's where the limit is, is is a big thing. So David was looking for the body language of riders from Trackside. I'm looking at Adam's body language right now. He wants to talk. Adam, who was your big winner? Uh, it's not quite desperation to talk, Steve, because I think we've covered my winner extensively. Um, Pekka Bagnaya for sure. But um, I'm interested in how Ducati will manage all their riders. I mean, we saw it quite illustrative um, in Sepang. Last year with Enea Bastianini and, uh, you know, as a rider, we haven't really talked about that much, Bastianini. But, um, you know, the way that Bagnaya was conducting himself, um, I asked Jack Miller um, in his debrief because Jack obviously spent, you know, several years with Perko and the factory team, their friends. I said, have you ever seen him more confident? And he just shook his head and said, you know, the, the guy is in a very happy place with his motorcycle. Um, he said he tried to follow him for a little while um, and, you know, he was... Basically, um, saying he's quite formidable. Uh, but then if you look at the Ducati flock, uh, I would say Luca Marini has a real spring in his step. He's looking, you know, superbly confident, I guess you could say, in his chances. I asked him if he would be under any pressure because now finally he has a bike to do the job and he said he welcomes the pressure. So I think he's really relishing the start of the season. Um, in contrast, I thought uh, Jorge Martin was sl slightly muted. Um, if he has signed a pre-contract with Yamaha, then maybe he was having a chat with Franco Morbidelli. We don't know. Uh, it might explain some of the um, slightly damp enthusiasm. But uh, I think, you know, amongst the Ducati horde, there's going to be quite a bit of squabbling uh, this year, more than we saw last year. So it's going to get quite frantic, I think. But uh, yeah, for me, for sure, new lap record. Um, it looks kind of depressingly set already, but then by all accounts, the weather could change in Portimao. It was bloody windy when we were there on the first day, and uh, that could really throw something in because we've had hardly any wet weather time for the, the riders at the moment. Yeah, I have to say, I'd like one of my big things that I was looking at during the course of the test were the independent Ducati riders, how that's all going to play out. I thought Martin looked really good his times especially in his sprint simulation looked pretty good so he's going to be there thereabouts but it's always in testing it's it's a lot easier i'm really keen to see what happens with martin when push comes to shove and we actually really get to see what he can do because last year was obviously a really tough season for him he's talked a lot about how the engine upgrades and, and all these things are, are big factors and giving him a lot more confidence but the proof of that is going to be from the first 12 lap sprint race that we have in Portimao. And it's up to him to really stamp his authority on being the, the next best Ducati rider, because that's got to be the big battle that's going to take a lot of attention all the way through, the, especially the first half of the season. Yeah, and Jorge was saying that he didn't do a full time attack at the end of Sunday. I think he might have left the circuit early. We just got a 
30-second sort and file sent through from Prama Express officer uh, by way of uh, a debrief. But in that, he was saying that he was testing some different fairings and different pieces here and there. Uh, He ended up going back to the base that they had from Sepang. Um, But yes, Steve, I mean, it took him half of last year to find a a base setting which made him feel comfortable on the bike. Um, He's already got one and um, he feels confident enough not to do a full-time attack at the end of the the day, which uh, is always the sign of someone that is in a very good place. Yeah, I mean, what Jorge Martin was saying on Saturday was the the engine, this year's engine is so much better than last year's engine. And I think this is the same for for the um, uh, Pekka Banyaya. Uh, ironically, Ducati have completely against their own nature. They've made the bike faster by making it slower. You know, the engine is slightly less powerful. It's not as it, it it's not sort of as, as focused on uh, power, but the power delivery is much much smoother. It's much better. Um, you know, they can. The, the, it's been sorted out. The electronics are, are working really well. Um, this, I think, is going to be really important especially for Pekka Banyaya I've been I've been typing up an interview I did with Christian Gabarini his crew chief at uh, at Sepang and he was basically saying yeah we we wanted to, to take the opposite approach to last year which is we want to be ready at the first uh, at the first race yeah and I thought David was quite interesting obviously looking at it from afar just with listening to the debriefs or reading the quotes I thought it was quite interesting that for Martin we've seen this massive step from the 22 engine to this one whereas for Bastianini it hasn't really been a talking point he was obviously on the 21 spec before this so I think again another indication of just how far down the wrong path Ducati seemed to go last year yeah and also I think it is worth pointing out that one of the reasons that uh, perhaps that Bastianini is, is starting to get uh, taking it a little bit slowly to get up to speed is precisely because he was on a much older bike he was on a gp21 uh, and it's a much bigger step from the 21 to the 23 than it is from the 22 to, to the 23 yeah and if you think the team around martin is pretty much the same i mean he's still working with the same crew chief bastianini's not just teams teams but changed uh crew chief as well marco rigamonti who was with zarco in the past is now his crew chief um after alberto Giribola has moved across to ktm who he'd been with for two years you know that's something that's going to take a little bit of time to get up to speed and we know we had a few um in air this is we had a few um technical issues on the first day in portamao he said he lost a bit of confidence as a result of that um but i mean he was fast his, his sprint simulation was really quick on sunday um and it seemed that he made a big big step on that final day so again <laughs> like pretty much any name any ducati rider on the grid and you can say he's going to be there yeah, you're right there now. I mean, Bastini did look quick. I mean, I asked him about the different team cultures from going from Grassini to the factory team. And he was, uh, you know, he didn't really answer the question. He was a little, not dismissive, but he said, well, there's, you know, there's no big change. Um, I don't know whether he didn't want to give anything away or whether, you know, Ducati were focusing principally on Bagnaia, um, you know, getting him up to speed and then letting uh, Bastianini feel his way into the work setup. That seems to be the kind of impression that he was coming giving across. Dave, what about you? Who was your big winner from the test? I think my big winner from the test is Fabio Quartararo because things were not looking uh, at all peachy on Saturday. Um, th- th- I mean, things looked sort of okay after Sepang, but it wasn't really that you would say, uh, you know, he was in fantastic shape. But I think after Sunday at uh, at Sepang or at, um, at Portimao, he looked absolutely fantastic. He was very happy. Um, he was convinced that he was going to he was going to be able to fight. Uh, he had enough 
this bike gave him enough to be able to actually, you know, battle. It, it, he's still not going to be overtaking any Ducatis on the straight, but at least he will be able to give them uh, a run for the, uh, for their money. And that is going to be the key for Yamaha to keeping Fabio Quartararo is, you know, giving him a bike. I, I, obviously, he wants to win the championship. That's what he's there for. Um, uh, but if Yamaha will, can give him a bike that he feels that he can actually fight for a championship, that he stands a fighting chance, uh, then and that's it. And I, I, it, right now, that's what it looks like. He was um, happy, Dave, up until his debrief on Sunday when he was watching the timing screens and speaking to us. And then Peko just slipped in that 137. Uh, his face was a picture, wasn't it? But it was. I think, you know, I, I do think we can file Fabio in that category whereby if he qualifies well and gets up with the Ducatis, then, you know, his talent and his kind of synergy or whatever you want to call it with the m1 will make sure he's competitive and that extra speed is going to help yeah for sure i think what dave just said there um about fabio saying he's confident that he has a bike that he can fight on now last year so often he was just a sitting duck whenever he was in a battle and he also needed he needed clear track didn't he um he could only really perform at his best when he had clear space ahead it seems now that at least he has a machine where he can make some moves and um not be on the absolute, absolute, absolute ragged edge trying to make overtakes. Um, yeah, and I think another interesting thing that he said over the weekend was how in Sepang, um, you know, when he had those issues with the uh, the qualifying runs at the end of the final day, he admitted in Portimao how that had kind of unsettled him and he stopped riding in a kind of calm manner. He said even when things weren't going well on the first day in Portimao, he was still trying to remain level-headed and calm. And you have to remind yourself that Fabio's still 23, he turns 24 next month. You know, he is still a super young guy, still very emotional as well. And this is the first time that he's ever had a, a winter like this where he's been testing a lot, you know. So it must require quite a different change in mindset where you're not always up at the top of the sh uh, of the timing screens and um, you're not able to just like go for a fast time whenever you want to because you have this big program ahead of you. Um, so I think we saw almost the, the kind of, uh, yeah, the, the development of Fabio as the kind of development rider through this preseason. Um, and yeah, it, it was, I thought it was, it was, it was a good sign for the championship, frankly, um, because we need some guys that aren't just on Ducatis to be up there fighting for the front. And we know that Fabio has the talent to take it all the way. Um, I think we can say the same about Mark as well at Honda. Just to put in an honourable mention as well, Raul Fernandez, he looks a lot happier, obviously, with the switch to the RNF Aprilia. And it'll be, it's going to be quite interesting to see what happens whenever the times actually matter. And then we'll see what Raul can do. Obviously, last year was such a miserable season for him. So now he gets the chance to kind of show what he can do again. But uh, David, we came to you last for the winners. Who are you picking as your loser from the Portimao test? Um, I am going to pick uh, Paul Espargaro because the KTM is not where it needs to be. Um, uh, I mean, yeah, sure, it says gas, gas on the tank, but it's KTM. Um, again, Paul was very, he was really happy to be back at KTM. Um, he's really happy to be back with uh, with Paul Trevathan. Um, he looked happy, certainly like at Sepang. He was absolutely delighted um, at uh, uh, Portimao. There, there were times when he looked a little bit worried. Um, and I think he's going to be in for a long year. He wasn't, uh, you know, he, he didn't have a particularly uh, good test. He wasn't particularly fast by the end of it. Um, uh, I, I really think he, this was something like he'd got his hopes up 
and I'm afraid that his hopes were just a little bit dashed at Portimao. Yeah, it's a, it's a shame that he didn't have some kind of similar experience last year, you know, where he kind of got his hopes up way too much during preseason, only for them to be dashed <laughs> early in the year. That's that's why he's my loser, quite honestly, because it really feels like oh, it's going to be like uh, it's going to be like twenty twenty two again. Yeah, but at least he recognised that fact. I mean, he said you know he was one of the fastest in preseason testing last year, and then he said, look how my year went. So yeah. uh, maybe he's keeping a little bit more level headed about it now. Yeah, but I guess I mean it's it's sort of tough to know who had the more difficult test. I mean, KTM as a whole, you know, they had a, a pretty rotten time, didn't they? Um, I know. Jack made some progress on the final day, was uh, less than a second off, which I think is a, a decent achievement. Um, but just li- listening to what Brad was saying uh, on both days from the, the audio that you sent through, I mean, it, it's just a, a kind of a chronic lack of rear grip that um, seems to be slowing KTM as a whole down at the moment. And it's a lack of rear grip that has appeared not just in Portimao, but in Valencia and at uh, Sepang. And this was supposed to be, you know, the test where they put all the combinations of the, the million different parts that they tried at Sepang. They put the correct combinations of engine, chassis, um, aerodynamics together, and they're still, um, you know, they're still struck by the same deficiency. Um, so, yeah, um, I, I, you know, Brad was able to put in a couple of fast laps on, on, on Sunday. Um, yeah, Brad but, Binder. Brad Binder put in a couple of fast laps. It had nothing to do with the KTM. That was uh, that, that was your um, uh, that was your Mark Marquez style fast lap. Not the uh, no, you know, not the the bike didn't have much to do to do with that. Yeah, and what what was his quote? He said he was doing like some insane things with the bike to to post that lap time. You know, so and it, and it, it it bit him in the end. You know, he had a massive crash at turn seven towards the end of Sunday, and I think he came to see you guys with a black eye and um, a kind of concussed demeanor. So, um, yeah, uh, just considering add what Pit Barrer had told us at the Gas Gas launch the previous week, where they were he was adamant that KTM are on course where they want to be, and where they want to be is fighting for the top three this year. I didn't get any impression of that um, at at Portimao. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I had Franco down as my loser purely because I gauged the kind of reactions of the riders come Sunday evening and, and Franco seemed to be the most lost and concerned. But um, Brad was close purely because, you know, he looked pretty beaten up. Um, you know, he already had, like you say, a shiner nil um, after the crash at turn seven. And he was one of the victims of another small point from the test, which was the criticism of the Portimao gravel, which is quite large clumps of rock. Um, and it causes the riders to you know, to start flipping when they get into the, the gravel. Um, Alessia Spargaro, Digia, uh, Brad mentioned it. There was a couple of people who were particularly critical. But then, Dave, I think we said in our note show that Portimao plans to change the gravel, um, you know, before the MotoGP race comes in. So at least that's one quick fix. But I, I popped into the KTM pit box at the end of the test and spoke to Sebastian Risa, who's the technical coordinator for both the KTM side and the Gas Gas side. And they were actually quite optimistic. He said, like you, like you point out, Neil, they had a lot to test in Sepang. When they got to Portimao, the job was all about finding a baseline. And he said the riders have uh, had found the baseline. I do believe I think KTM will come with something else to the Grand Prix itself. Not an ideal situation, of course, to still be testing in the Grand Prix. But there was some quiet kind of optimism there that you know the, the team or the brand or the company or whatever were not quite in as much trouble as they looked to be on Saturday afternoon. And um, Binder's that time, yes, he pushed like crazy and we all know how good he is, but it was half a second away from, you know, Bagnaya's lap record buster. 
So I think it it doesn't look great, but then also I don't think we got a very clear picture of that particular setup. Yeah, I think we have to emphasize that this year uh, having a baseline is going to be all about having a baseline. You have to go into the season with a good base setup, which will work at pretty much every track because as we were saying earlier, there's not much setup time. Sprint races mean, you know, you haven't got your FP4 or whatever. Uh, if you turn up somewhere and the bike isn't working, you don't have any time to fix it. And that's why you keep inviting me back to the Paddock Pass podcast, because it's important this year to have a baseline. <laughs> oh my god and people people keep coming back for those jokes i'll give you a little chuckle there neil good good one <laughs> yeah, mate apologies. Um, but um what about your big loser from the weekend neil apart from obviously um us for having to hear that joke <laughs> and, yeah and our poor <laughs> listeners yeah i feel like i should send out um i don't know complimentary t-shirts or something to um to to basically make up for that but yeah I, my loser steve i mean in a way, it's it's Honda, but specifically, it's it's Taka Nakagami because, I mean, he's kind of MotoGP's forgotten man in many respects, isn't he? Um, he was twentieth, uh, and you know, unlike Marquez, Mir, and Rins, you know, Rins and Mir are obviously getting up to speed in the Honda. I think we all expect Marquez to work his usual magic and 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 still be kind of towards the sharp end this year uh despite the the bike's limitations but taka it's been a it's been a rough preseason um and he's, he's not really fared very well at all and I, I know he still has some of the um some of the battle scars from that uh, tricky crash that he had at aragon last year which necess- necessitated uh, a skin graft um you know that is still i think causing them problems but you just look at him and you think with Igor pretty much waiting in the wings um, Agura's obviously had his own injury issues recently, but with Agura waiting in the wings, you know, you just think Tak is living on borrowed time. And with a, a pretty tough Honda, which hasn't really made any evident steps forward during the offseason, yeah, I, I can't see this being anything other than a, a really, really tough year for him. Yeah, well, we haven't talked that much about Honda, but to try and sum it up, I think indecision was is maybe a word that can be applied. Um, Juan Mir was, you know, getting the hang of the bike. Uh, he was also one of the issues he spoke about was the power delivery and the throttle connection. Again, Dave and I spoke about this quite substantially on the Paddock Pass po- podcast notes show. Um, Alex Rins picked his chassis on Saturday afternoon, was pretty complimentary about it and stuck with it. So, I, you know, I think he was probably more quietly optimistic of the bunch. And then Mark Marquez, I think we... You know, he was saying if he had to run the Grand Prix tomorrow, he'd be finishing between fifth and tenth. But he was also quite quick to stress that there's little point in getting frustrated and angry at the situation. Uh, you know, he's got he's one of the most experienced riders now in the MotoGP grid. And, you know, pick a cliche, it's going to be a long season. There's a lot of racing to go. And I'm sure he's going to get familiar enough with that package to be able to extract the maximum from it. But, uh, you know, Mark was justifiably asking, facing questions about his championship credentials. And he couldn't be that optimistic. But then at the same time, he wasn't really, you know, throwing his toys out of the pram. Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily think that's a good thing. I think when you're, if you're, people are asking you how your season's going, and people are, and uh, and your answer is, um, uh, well, it, it, you know, there's no point in getting upset. Then that's not really the kind of really uh, powerful, optimistic. Let's uh, yay, let's go for the future. Um, we'll, everything will come right. Attitude that uh, that you would want. Yeah, but 
Davey's pulled that lever already with HRC and said, right, we change it, we make a decent bike, and he, he hasn't it hasn't come forward yet. So I don't think he has any credit left in terms of demanding stuff from Honda. Well, I, I think he's, you know, he, he, he keeps demanding stuff from Honda, and Honda keep a promising stuff, but they just never seem to be able to, to bring it. I do think that Ken Kawauchi from Suzuki is making a difference. The, uh, things seem a lot better organized, uh, but they're just, they've just really got a very long way to go. Yeah, um, I mean, pretty much everything that Honda brought to the test, I think Marquez had discarded right by the final day. Um, I think he was on his pretty much Sepang bike by day two yeah. in Portimao, um, yeah. just mm. working on setup. And um, I mean, you were quite interested, Dave, speaking about watching the Honda's trackside, especially coming out of the final turn and how um, basically how difficult the bike looked to be um, over the rise just before the start yeah. finish line. Um, there's clearly issues there with throttle connection, um, with the engine electronics still not being kind of matched up. And certainly when you looked at the, the fastest lap times and the sector times, I think Mark was second slowest through the final sector across the weekend. Mir was fourth slowest, which is a, you know, that's pretty telling that some serious, serious issues are, are, are at play here. So, um, yeah, not, not a good test, I would say, for Honda at all. Um, and kind of like KTM with Binder, you know, they're going to be relying on extraterrestrial levels of talent to try and dig them out of this. The one good thing is that we got to see um, uh, Joanne Mayer just pulling these absolute monster wheelies over the crest at like <laughs> 230 kilometers an hour or whatever, uh, uh, shifting up into fifth. So that it, it was fun to watch. It's a very slow way. It, you know, it, it's not fast, but it was at least impressive to watch. Obviously enough, we're going to have a, a good chance in a couple of days' time to really see what all the testing means and uh, how it's all going to play out over the course of the 2023 season. For us on the Paddock Pass podcast, we're going to be recording our preview show in the next few days and we're going to have a special guest, Simon Crafar, joining us on the pod once again. And I'm not going to lie, Dave, I'm going to limit Simon to just saying he loves you in his intro <laughs> and then he's never going to mention it again. But I want you to take it for granted. He does love you and he respects you greatly. But uh, it will only be one mention in uh, next week's podcast. Also, for uh, everyone that's uh, supporting us on Patreon, check out uh, the patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast for lots of additional content. I know that uh, the three guys did their Spanish uh, should be world champions recently, and we're going to have a lot more content going up on Patreon as well. We also have the Paddock Notes show every day of a Grand Prix weekend. So check that out for our Paddock Insiders on Patreon. In addition to the notes show, a 15, 20-minute review of today's action, you'll also get yourself a Paddock Pass podcast coffee mug. And uh, even though David wouldn't agree with you, you can put plenty of milk into your coffee for that and uh, be sure to share with us you uh, drinking that back. We also have the Paddock Pass podcast team member tier as well. And this is a special tier that gives you the chance to join us all on a Zoom call and lots of merchandise as well through the year, T-shirts, hoodies, and uh, the same coffee mug as well so check out patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast next week we're going to have simon crafar so we're all looking forward to having simon on the show and uh, as ever a big thank you from all of us to Renthal street for supporting the paddock pass podcast this episode of the paddock pass podcast was produced by jensen beeler david emmett steve english neil morrison and adam wheeler it was edited by brian burnett music is provided by the liberty all inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.
Fornication. <laughs> I, well, yes. <laughs>